0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary.
3: And I'm your host, Brianna Wong from Wake Forest University School of Divinity.
2: Songs of Lisu Hills, Practicing Christianity in Southwest China, published by Penn State University Press in 2020, and the second book in the World Christianity series, explores the lesser-known history of the Lisu Church after its evangelization a hundred years ago by the China Inland Mission. Aminta Arrington's work brings this history up to date, recounting the unlikely story of how the Lisu maintained their faith through 22 years of government persecution and illuminating how Lisu Christians transformed the text-based religion brought by missionaries into a faith-centered around an embodied set of Christian practices. Based on ethnographic fieldwork as well as archival research, this groundbreaking monograph closely examines how the Lisu have embraced Christianity and practiced their faith. With her eloquent writing style and careful analysis, Aminta explores how the Lisu, most of whom remain subsistence farmers, have oriented their faith less around cognitive notions of belief and more around participation in a rhythm of shared Christian practices such as line dancing, attending church and festivals, evangelizing, working in one another's fields, and singing translated Western hymns. These embodied practices demonstrate how Christianity developed in the mountainous margins of the world's largest atheist state. Over the course of our conversation today, we'll take a closer look at this important work, how this book guides the readers in better understanding the history and development of Lisu christianity and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit tremendously from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned. And we hope you enjoyed the book and our conversations as well.
3: Today, we are privileged to talk with Aminta Arrington, author of Songs of the Lisu Hills, Practicing Christianity in Southwest China. Aminta Arrington is Associate Professor of Intercultural Studies and Coordinator of Faculty Development at John Brown University in Siloam Springs, Arkansas. After eight years in China, Dr. Arrington came to JBU to share her passion for the world's peoples and cultures. Dr. Arrington has traversed both major and minor waterways throughout Southeast Asia, the Mekong River from Northern Thailand through Laos, Cambodia, and the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, the Irrawaddy River from Mandalay to Bagan in Myanmar or Burma, and trekked through northern Thailand on foot and via bamboo raft. She has explored the ruins of ancient civilizations at Siem Reap, Cambodia, Ayutthaya, and Sukhothai in Thailand, and Hue, Vietnam. She has traveled across the length of Java, east to west, and Vietnam, south to north, by rail. She spent a year studying Japanese in Tokyo. She has participated in homestays with the Karen of northern Thailand and the Bedayu of Malaysian Borneo. She's been attacked by monkeys in Bali and eaten mango sticky rice in Thailand too many times to count. But her greatest joys are found in worshiping God with Christians from the global south and in teaching her students to better understand and appreciate the depth, diversity, and beauty of what the Greek New Testament calls the pante ta ethne, the world's peoples and cultures. In addition to songs of the Lisu Hills, Dr. Arrington is the author of Home is a Roof Over a Pig An American Family's Journey in China, published in 2012. She is also the editor of the collected volume, Saving Grandmother's Face and Other Tales from Christian Teachers in China, published in 2010, and co-editor with Kenneth Nervas of Advancing Models of Mission, Evaluating the Past and Looking to the Future, published in
1: 2021.
2: Welcome, Dr. Arrington, uh, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book.
1: It's so good to be here today.
2: Thank you once again. Um, I think it'll be wonderful uh, if we can if we can begin our conversation today by getting to know you more, um, Dr. Harrington. So, if you do you mind telling us a few words about yourself—that is, where you grew up, uh, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study—and please feel free to also mention any influential uh, mentors or interlocutors you've had along your academic journey.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Well, I was raised in a small town of Dutch immigrants, and this is kind of significant because I realized much, much later, not until my time with the Lisu in southwest China, that I was raised in a communal pocket within individualistic America. And so this hometown that I was raised in, where we really did Christianity together as a community, prepared me well uh, for my research with the Lisu. I had kind of an an intrinsic understanding that that came from being raised in this small Dutch immigrant community. After that, I had a very winding path to my PhD studies, Uh, college, marriage, uh, did uh, master's degree work in political science, uh, then my husband was in the army, so I followed him around all over the place. Children were born. And then finally, um, in my 30s, uh, I fi- found myself teaching in China, and that was when I had the chance to, to complete the intercultural studies degree. Um, and so my, um, I did have some, some really great mentors along the way, um, especially Doug Hayward at Biola University. He's the first one who told me about the anthropology of Christianity. And Rich Starcher at Biola University, uh, he made me excited about research methods. And he, he made research, um, specifically qualitative research, just seem like a great adventure, which it has proven to be. Uh, once the dissertation was finished, I found that uh, it was a little bit tricky because as an academic study, it didn't quite fit. It just wasn't really Chinese enough for the field of Chinese studies or Chinese history or, or missions in China. It wasn't really anthropological enough for anthropology, even the anthropology of Christianity. Yet at the same time, it was too ethnographic for history. And so I was just kind of wondering where my home was going to be. And I found it. And uh, that was my first conference of the Yale Edinburgh group for uh, the study of world Christianity. And uh, Brian Stanley and Alex Chow and Emma Wildwood in uh, Edinburgh were not just so welcoming of my research with the Lisu. I mean, I showed up and they knew about it and were excited about it. That had never happened before to me, but they were just welcoming as people. Um, And so uh, that was just a really, really seminal event for me. And that's that Yale Edinburgh has been my home ever since.
3: Beautiful. Thank you um, for this opportunity to get to know you better. I know you've touched on a little a little bit of this already, but I just wanted to invite you to tell us a little bit more about how you came to write songs of the Lisu Hills, practicing Christianity in Southwest China. How did the idea develop and what led you to go on this quest of examining the Lisu and the Lisu Church? And I'm curious to know what your, resa- re- what your research process was like um, as you take multiple trips to Lisu land, the area known as the Nujiang Valley in China's Yunnan province, um, and also as you visit um, Chiang Mai in Thailand,
1: right? Um, it's really such an interesting story. It started off as we were getting ready to head to China for the very first time. What ended up being eight years of of teaching in China, and we were at orientation at this missionary home in Oakland, California, called the Home of Peace, and they had a bookshelf of of used books. And so in my spare time, I would look through the books and there were a lot of missionary biographies and I found books by Isabel Kuhn and she was writing about the Lisu. And so I read every one of her books that was on the used bookshelf and then I, I got my hands on the others. And so that's how I learned about the Lisu for the first time. Uh, then years go by and I start my PhD studies at Biola and i'm kind of now you know in search of a dissertation and i I had my first term at biola and this was in chiang mai thailand uh biola had an extension center there so i went to two weeks of of in-person classes in chiang mai thailand and then we did a little family a little family vacation um to Laos. and that's actually when we were drifting down the mekong river and we visited a, a village and we were walking around, this was a village of weavers, and there was a loom in front of every home, and there was a town square where they were selling uh, their woven items. And my husband said to me, this is what you want to do, don't you? Like, this is what your dissertation should be. You just want to come to a small village like this and live here and and write an ethnographic study of, of this village. And I said, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know me so well. You're right. But I said, the problem is I'm a China person. You know, I'd been in China for five or six years at that point. We have a daughter adopted from China. So I'm a Chinese mother, though not in a traditional sense, but I do have that responsibility to train up a child in Chinese culture. So I have leaned into that, uh, you know, studied Chinese in depth, you know, my, I am situated in China and this is Laos. And so this, this will not work, but yes. (laughs) So then we returned home to Beijing and I was writing some papers for my Biola classes about Christianity in China. And I read a research article about why, um, why different people that the author had interviewed had joined what is called the government church in China or the three self church. So there were a bunch of stories that were all pretty familiar to me by that point. So, for example, one person said, I joined the church because um, my foreign English teacher told me the gospel. Okay, that's familiar. Or another one said, "Um, I've never heard anything about Christianity, but then I had a vision and God really spoke to me. And so then I learned more about Christianity and I joined the church. Okay, that's actually also a very familiar story in China. Then there was a third story. And the person said, I came from a Christian family. And I thought, what? This one's different, this is unusual. I didn't know anybody who came from a Christian family. So I kept reading. And she said, I'm an ethnic minority from Southwest China. I was raised in a Lisu Christian family. And I, I just kind of stood back and I thought, wow. You know, and I thought back to reading about the books from, from Isabel Kuhn and, and realizing there was this direct connection between the work that she had done a hundred years ago. And then this, this, um, story I was reading about a Lisu Christian today coming from a Christian family. And I had been throwing all these dissertation ideas out to my husband and I would go, I would always go walk over to his office and say, Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to study this, uh, Chinese Bishop, but uh, he was born in Rome. And so we'll move to Rome and, and I'll study Italian and, and, and my husband, Chris, would say, yeah, maybe, um, you know, keep thinking. <laughs> so then I would come up with another dissertation idea. He would say, yeah, you know, keep thinking. And then I walked up to him and I said, I do an ethnographic study, living with the Lisu today, and finding out how they practice Christianity now 100 years after they were evangelized by the China Inland Mission. And he looked at me and he said, that's the one. Um, So it ended up, of course, being difficult. (laughs) Um, We took a a family trip, all five of us, we have three children, to Lisu Land in Yunnan province. We went during uh, our spring break, uh, which is part of the rainy season. And so we experienced the rainy season in full in Lisuland. And that means landslides. There's one road in and the same road out, one road in and out. On our way back, we were stopped three times by landslides. Um, rained all the time. And, and I'm from Washington state, I can handle rain. This was a lot of rain. And we realized that it just wasn't gonna work for our whole family to relocate. Uh, to Lisu land to do the ethnographic field work. I mean, in, a, in addition to the difficulties of physical geography, which are real, there would also be like, how, how would our income come? And what are, this, what are the Chinese government officials going to say when this foreign family just decides to move into town? And where are our children going to go to school? And in addition, the life would be so difficult. I would spend most of my time tending to my own family and and I would be able to spend very little time in, in doing research. I would be in probably one of the cities, not in the countryside or, or in a village. And so we made the, the decision that I would go by myself. Although I actually, I usually took one of my children with me and, um, would live with the Lisu people. And so that's, in fact, what happened. And so over a two-year period, I took five different trips ranging from one week to two months. Um, and mo- Chris and the kids stayed back in Beijing most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I came in during key key periods like festivals, mm-hmm. uh, for example.
2: Wow. Thank you for sharing the, your journey um, into writing this extraordinary Extraordinary book. Um, this really helps us to put into perspective the countless hours and the uh, you know blood, sweat, and tears that you know goes into uh, writing such a book. So thank you once again for sharing that. Um, and as we turn to the beginning pages of your book, Doctor Arrington, it is comprised of nine chapters uh, plus an introductory chapter, and it, it it entails maps, pictures that helps us better understand the context and about the of Christians. Um, and before we dig deeper into the contents of the book, um, here I would like to highlight one key aspect which I deeply appreciated, and that is these short two-page um, snippets which you title Voices. Um, these are short first-person narratives that come from your interviews with the Lisu Christians, and they indeed help remind the readers that this book is the story of real people, about their lives and their faith. and. In presenting these short stories of the Lizu Christians, you have managed to amplify their voices and tell the story in their terms. Um, all that which connects to what the field of world Christianity also um, seeks to do. So, And it is in the introduction of your book, Dr. Chin, that you provide the readers with some groundwork to your study of the of Christians' lived experiences. In doing so, it is here where you employ the term ethnographic imagination as your approach in examining, quote, how the Lisu of Southwest China have defined faith as a rhythm of shared Christian practices, end quote. Dr. Errington, do you mind unpacking this concept of ethnographic imagination and how do you utilize this as your gra- guiding premise to this book? I think this will not only help us better understand the framework of your book, but also about world Christianity as well.
1: Yes, thank you for your question. Uh, in the course of my field work, I had a couple of real seminal moments. And one of those seminal moments was when I was talking with my Lisu language teacher. He was a pastor. He was a farmer. And I had moved into his home. Uh, He lived there with his wife and his two daughters and his parents. And uh, they they made an upstairs bedroom for me. And uh, I wanted to pay them for staying there. I ended up staying there for a month and that was not going to work in Lisu culture because Lisu culture, Lisu people are hospitable and welcoming. You would never pay to stay in a home and eat with them. So that was not going to work. Uh, but I said, well, will you be my my Lisu language teacher? And he said, yes. And I said, can, you, can I pay you for that? Well, yes, you can. So So that was our arrangement. Uh, I studied the Lisu language for two hours every morning after all the morning chores were completed. And so in the course of this, um, this pastor, his his name in the book is Timothy, he told me a story. And he said, one time, uh, my family and I received a letter from my uncle in India. And before that, I didn't even know that I had an uncle in India. Okay. I'm intrigued. So I'm saying, okay, tell me what's going on. And he said, he said, well, um, my grandfather and my grandmother were Christians. And then in the late 1950s, when life for Christians got really difficult in China, my grandfather decided to go across the border into Burma. And the border is not very far from the part of, um, of Yunnan province where we were. It's very mountainous, um, but it's really only a few miles. So his plan was to cross over the border and to get things set up. And then he was going to return and um, get his wife and his small children. Well, that was the plan. In actuality, they never heard from him again. And they didn't know what happened until they received the letter. And so the letter was from uh, the grandfather's son, (laughs) Right. And so what had happened was the border got the border was closed between China and Myanmar, so he couldn't return back. He was stuck. And he wasn't really welcome in, in Burma either. So he just kept moving, kept going west and ended up in this um, small part of uh, in India, what is known as the tribal areas um, there, where there is now um, a Lisu community of people who all have a similar story as as this person. And so he settled down there and he married again. And he had children and um, at least two sons. And so one of these sons, who was now a Lisu pastor himself, had written the letter back to the family in China. And it's and it's the Lisu language, this written language created by the pioneering missionary to the Lisu, J. O. Frazier, and we will get to that a little bit later, that enabled this family that is separated by history and borders and geography um, to, to be able to at least know that, that they existed and to know what happened. Um, So that explained what happened to the grandfather. Um, The grandmother never found out and uh, sadly she died angry and bitter. Um, And uh, but when I heard this story, I thought this actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with my research. Um, I'm not talking so much about Burma. I'm not really talking about India. I'm trying to keep my ethnography bounded in the New Jiang Valley of of Yunnan province, southwest China. Yet this story is compelling. And in addition, I can't just cut it up and use parts of it to support this theme theme, and parts of it to support another theme for the purposes of, of building my own theory, my own theoretical development. That fills um, almost unethical. It, the story needs to remain as a whole. And so I, I had to figure out a way to do that. And so I, I did so with these voices sections. I started just collecting stories, uh, which was great fun. Um, uh, cl- you know, it, It's still collecting data, but you think about parsing out data and, and little chunks of data. These were just whole stories. And it was based on that particular experience of having these whole stories that were hugely important, but not necessarily completely tied to my research question that I learned about the sociological imagination, which is a classic sociological concept developed by C. Wright Mills. And basically his idea of the sociological imagination is that it links together big stories big stories which he defined as large social events with small stories which are the individual biographies of people who are impacted by these big social events so it's individual lives embedded in these broader historical forces and then finding truth in the tension between these big stories and these small stories and i read about the sociological imagination in an ethnography Uh, By Susan Mannon, called City of Flowers. And she then had already uh, transformed the term into the ethnographic imagination. And then I took that term and applied it to world Christianity. So in world Christianity, I believe the ethnographic imagination links big church movements with the individuals that participate in them. It links the texts, such as scripture and artifacts, such as hymn books with oral traditions, creeds, with practices, maybe key elite figures with lay practitioners. So um, the big stories and the small stories linked together. And then in my specific study, we Lisu Christianity. There were a lot of broader stories, big stories, that impacted the faith of individuals. So a big story would be the missionaries coming in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, A big story would be 22 years of state-sponsored government persecution where all churches were closed from 1958 into 1980. And then another big story would be the rebuilding of the church that happened after 1980. So these were all big forces. And I wrote about those in my book, but the book would be incomplete without the individual stories of how people's lives were impacted because they grew up during a time of the big stories. And Pastor Timothy helped me with this because in this story, he said, you know, as he was narrating his uncle and his grandfather and then his father, he said, really, my father was born at an unlucky time. He was born in the 1950s and then the churches closed in 1958. And so this this led to this, this difficulty, this migration story in our family. He said, I, on the other hand, I was born in 1978. Two years later, the church has opened up and now I'm a pastor and I can do this freely. And so Pastor Timothy even linked his own personal story to the bigger stories that impacted his people as a whole. Wow.
3: Thank you for sharing, Dr. Arrington. That's um, tremendously fascinating and inspiring as well. In studying the history of Christianity, especially in the global South, the stories of the impact that missionaries have had and the growth and development of Christianity is not uncommon. And in chapter one, we see this through the missionary services of a young, determined British Protestant missionary named James Outram Fraser, who goes to China with the China Inland Mission, CIM. We read how his heart for the Lisu was ignited through a brief encounter with them at the marketplace, which would lead him to focus his mission work in Lisu and evangelizing to the Lisu people. And one of the approaches that Fraser employed in developing the Lisu church was through the indigenous principles, also known as the three self-principles, self-supporting, self-governing, and self-evangelizing. Dr. Arrington, could you talk more about Fraser's unique approach in utilizing the indigenous indigenous principles, especially as a quote-unquote entrance strategy for the Lisu, and how this has become a solid foundation that has impacted Lisu Christians to this day?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Well, first, let me say that uh, J.O. Frazier, the pioneering missionary to the Lisu that you mentioned, uh, did not come up with the indigenous principles or also called the three self principles on his own. Uh, They were actually first developed by Henry Venn of the uh, Church Missionary Society in Britain and kind of at the same time by Rufus Anderson of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in the United States. And the two men uh, were kind of missions administrators who corresponded with one another and came up with these three self or indigenous principles. They were then refined by John Nevius, who was a missionary around the turn of the last century in Northern China and then Korea. And then a very influential book was written by Roland Allen in 1912 called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And Roland Allen was a missionary, a British missionary in Beijing. And it was based on his own experience with the mission station approach to Christianity or to missions, I should say, where converts were all brought into a mission station uh, where they um, they learned certainly more about Christianity, but they also learned about Western culture and they learned English. They often went to school there. They were often employed there. And essentially they, they became unequipped to ever spread Christianity further among their own people. They were just too Westernized to do so. And so Roland Allen was really critiquing this approach and comparing it to the missionary methods of, of Paul. And interestingly, this book was, was published in 1912. And J.O. Frazier arrived on the field in Yunnan province in 1913. And so he, he read this book and uh, learned about the Lisu peoples, began to have his contact with the Lisu people, decide to, to spend his life evangelizing the Lisu people, and uh, wanted to do so using these indigenous methods. And he could because the Lisu was a completely fresh field. There were no other mission organizations there. So it wasn't that um, some kind of edifice had to be broken down and they had to start over. He just had this, this blank slate in terms of, of how to do missions. So from the very beginning, he once there was a Lisu church to work with, And once there was a second generation of missionaries for him to mentor, he insisted upon um, these indigenous methods with the Lisu Church. So the Lisu Church would be self-governing, self-evangelizing, and self-supporting. So self-governing meant that the Lisu were always in charge. Now, this worked well for two reasons. First of all, they already had their own community leaders, and they usually would become Christians as a whole village. So a whole village is now Christian. They already have leaders. So you just make the village leaders into the church leaders, right? Um, so it worked very naturally in that way. But it was important in another way. And that is that although villages had leaders, the Lisu as a minority were very much marginalized within the People's Republic. Well, it wasn't the People's Republic then, but within China. And they were, uh, you know, they were a minority group they were looked down upon. And so putting them in charge of the church uplifted the Lisu as minority people in the face of a very large and powerful majority amongst whom they lived. So it was the self-government was very important for two reasons. How this played out, I remember reading in Isabel Kuhn, um, she said on Sundays she would walk to church and she would see on the board who was the ministry leader for the day who was doing directing the choir who was doing the prayer and if the missionary's name had been written on then the missionary did what was asked of him but if the missionary's name was not written down she would just sit on the pew like everybody else um she was not in charge um in any way Uh, the lisu governed their own church so that's self-governing Self-evangelizing in the Lisu context meant that the missionaries stayed in the background and they did Bible translation and they taught at Bible schools, but they did not do frontline evangelism from the very beginning. I mean, someone, a Lisu Christian might've been Christian for about two weeks. They would send them out to do evangelism. It was always a local endeavor. And so what it meant was Lisu People heard about the gospel from another Lisu person, always from the very beginning and still today. So that's self evangelizing. And self supporting meant no foreign money went to the Lisu church, none whatsoever. And this was what caused the most tension because some of the second generation of missionaries, such as Alan and Layla Cook, um, wanted to give a little bit. I mean, remember, this is an impoverished area you know, how do you think through this ethically when you are a Western missionary, which by definition means you are rich and you're working, spreading the gospel in an impoverished area and you want to give. But Fraser said, absolutely not. There will be no foreign money going into the Lisu church, even to pay translator helpers, even to give them, to give them, um, a penknife, And if you had some, um, medical knowledge, which a lot of the missionaries did, The Lisu had to pay to be seen for medical problems. And if they didn't have an egg or something to give to the missionary to be seen, they didn't get seen and they, and they didn't get medicine. He was that strict. Okay. Well what this meant was when the Lisu church finally decided to build some church buildings, they built them in Lisu style, the way that homes are built. Um, and they did it on their, their own initiative. When they decided to send out Lisu evangelists, the church itself would raise money and they would formulate plans where the evangelists would stay in different Christian homes and be fed by different Christian homes. And they did it all their way. There, there was not this infusion of foreign funds. So it, what it ultimately meant is that Lisu Christianity is absolutely Lisu. You can go different places around the world and see the missionary influence, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, but Lisu Christianity, because Fraser insisted upon these three self principles from the beginning, Lisu Christianity is culturally, it it culturally, it fits the Lisu people like a glove.
2: Hmm. Thank you so much for that answer. And, really putting into perspective of what it means what lisa christianity is about and um your answer has has helped us to you know understand um about more about lisa christianity and kind of building on from the your answer and our discussion just now another pivotal uh contribution um that the missionaries especially fraser uh missionary Fraser, makes to lisa christianity that is no noteworthy is regarding the development of the written script um in both chapters one and two um, you go to great length uh to discuss about how fraser spent many years with the lisu he and bathau uh karen uh tribesman from burma who spoke Lisu, developed the written script uh for the Lisu language and i was wondering dr errington if you could expound on the significance of this written script Uh, also referred to as the Fraser script. Um, uh, Remember in your book, how you put it as the Fraser script. Um, What kind of impact did it have on the orality-centered Lisu culture and Lisu Christians? And furthermore, what kind of impact did Lisu oral poetry bear upon uh, the Bible translations that were taking place?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. J.O. Fraser was trained as an engineer. Turns out he was a phenomenal linguist, and he would sit around Lisu fires at night and write down three hundred words that he learned around the campfire, <laughs> and uh, learned Lisu beautifully, fluently from sitting around campfires. Uh, so his knowledge came from from daily life, you know, from from everyday life and so he he did meet um a Karen tribesman from burma batow and the two of them together developed uh a writing system to express the lisu oral language which was very complicated to do because the lisu is not only a tonal language uh like many other asian languages like chinese the lisu also has tone combinations <laughs> so I I had the idea going in, you know, I thought Lisu, like learning, learning Lisu can't actually be that hard. I mean, actually, Jo Frazier learned how to do it pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, and it's an oral language. It's not like there's dictionaries or, you know, all that, you know, I I had the idea that an oral language would have a smaller working vocabulary. I was completely wrong. Oral languages are much more complex than written languages. And there's, there's so much nuance. And there's like a story underlying every word that everybody knows. And so, but he, he learned it well. And together with Ba Tao, they were able to develop a script that was very well suited to the syntax and the phonology of the Lisu language. And so bottom line during the mission period, any Lisu could learn to read their own language in maybe a week or two because the the written language just reflected the oral language so easily. And you could sit in church and learn to read just by following along in scripture or following along with him singing. And I say this because that's how I learned to read Lisu. Uh, I did it myself that way, and it it is that easy, and it it just it just fits with fits with the language so well. Um, But having said that, what I learned, uh, oral cultures are just so complex. It's not like everybody learns to read their own language and they're suddenly now a literate culture. It's not that literacy is like this on-off switch. Um, The only books really still today, the only books in the Lisu language are the Bible and the hymn book. And when your written language only has two books the culture is not going to stray far from its original orality. And so it's going to stay a very oral culture. It's going to remain a very communal culture. It's not going to make the cultural shifts that tend to come about with literacy. So that's one thing. Now a complication with with the Lisu today is that the the Chinese written language is very, very strong and very powerful. So you might, a, a Lisu family might speak Lisu in home in their homes. They will go to church in Lisu. They will sing songs using the Lisu hymn book, read the Bible in Lisu, but then the children go to school and that's all in Chinese. Or you go to town and you need to buy things and that's all in Chinese. Or you go buy a new cell phone and you need to hook it up and you're reading the directions and those directions are in Chinese. So it, from a practical standpoint, it can be more important to learn how to read Chinese than it is to learn how to read Lisu, so that's that's this other interesting phenomenon going on at the same time. Then, to add to the complexity, there are Lisu Bible schools. So this was a, an innovation of the missionaries, and it still continues today. There are Lisu Bible schools; they're short-term, like about um, three months in length. And there, you go to school, and you really young Lisu Christians can really cement their reading skills beyond just singing along in a hymn and really get good at reading their own language. They can read the Bible in more depth, but think about the empowerment that happens when you're a minority and you have to go to school in the national language for you then to be able to go to school, to go to this academic setting in your own language where you're taught by teachers who share your ethnicity and who are, who are teaching you in your own language And you're studying things that are important to your own culture, such as your own religion, being Christianity. So there's this this huge empowerment um, that has happened. So the Lisu linguistic situation is so interesting and complex. And then you asked a question about oral poetry and and the impact that oral poetry had on the translation of the Bible. So I would like to talk about that a little bit. Um, The Lisu... Well, the Lisu are hymn singing people, and so when the Bible was translated in the 1920s and the 1930s, the Bible was translated at the same time that the hymn book was translated, and the same translator helper um, helped the missionaries translate both things at the at the same time. So they proceeded apace, and in the course of this translation, the missionaries uh, found out about Lisu oral poetry. And they found out because it was something that old women could do. And they were trying to translate some really more abstract terms in the Bible. The Bible has some really abstract terms, you know, redemption, you know, um, uh, yeah, forgiveness. Um, you know, things that were not day-to-day words of the Lisu language. Well, how are you going to translate the Bible? And especially when these are new Christian concepts that 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 there's not a Lisu word for well then layla cook who was uh, one of the second generation of missionaries she heard about these old women whose job was to chant oral poetry during funerals and so she listened to them chanting and she wrote down their words and these were not everyday words they were only ritual words used in a in a funeral context but they had some of the abstractions and what she found was the way that lisu people make abstract terms you know in english we make abstract terms by kind of turning them into latin based words right we say legitimize or standardize right that's how we tend to go abstract well for the lisu people they go abstract by means of a four word the number four four word couplet and so in a pattern like a would be the first word b would be the second word then back to a and then c and the a word and the b word and the c word are all concrete terms used in everyday life but when you put them together in a couplet a b a c it reflects an abstraction and so they were able to use some abstractions already present some forward couplets already present in the Lisu language and translate the bible using those terms for example the word blessing was was translated in this way or they were also able to coin new words that weren't existing in the Lisu language but they used this pre-existing structure right and so what's what's so amazing what i just absolutely love is that the bible translation has now preserved These um, four word couplets. I mean, they'll have them forever. Like they're in the Bible, they're in the hymn book. These four word couplets that would have been lost as the older generation died off, as these old women oral poets died. This would have been lost to the Lisu people forever. And because of the evangelization, evangelization of the Lisu, they have kept this important part of their cultural heritage.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: Thank you, Dr. Arrington. My, my mind is um, kind of still reeling from the complexity of all of this really um, amazing. I wanted to thank you um, for calling attention to these important nuances and breaking that down for us. Um, chapters three and four Educate us on the continued development of the Lisu Christian Church after the great period of evangelization during the 1910s, as you delineate the advent of the second generation of missionaries, the shift in the geographical center of Lisu mission work, along with some of the progress and tensions after Fraser's departure. More importantly, it also sheds light on the gap that was growing between the Western missionaries and the Lisu Christians. We see that in constructing their Christian identity, Lisu Christians strongly conform to Lisu culture and placed great emphasis on Christian faith practice. This is evident in their regular church and Bible school attendance, communal hymn singing, and interestingly, this choice to refrain from smoking and drinking. Um, and it's here I would like to pose my next question, Dr. Errington: what significance did abstinence from smoking and drinking have on the Lisu Christians? And how has the practice changed in terms of meaning and form, especially in light of the interplay between the missionaries and Alisu Christians?
1: Thank you. That's a a great question. And that's another really interesting aspect of Lisu Christianity. As you pointed out, you cannot be a Lisu Christian if you drink or you smoke. You cannot be baptized until you stop smoking and you stop drinking. But interestingly, this was not a missionary idea. So the Lisu during the 1910s, 1920s, they smoked and they drank, as did everybody. Uh, In fact, they would spend a lot of their rice harvest um, taking the rice, turning it into rice wine. Uh, Even little children would start drinking from a very young age. Um, Teeth would be discolored. And they noticed, though, that the missionaries who were living among them, even though they never commented on the smoking or the drinking, they noticed that the missionaries didn't smoke and didn't drink. And so then they started to think, well, wait a minute, maybe to be, to be a good Christian, we should be like the missionaries and we shouldn't smoke and and we shouldn't drink. And so they talked about this amongst themselves and they said, we're going to set a date and we're all going to stop. Okay. Now here's where the tension comes. They went to one of the missionaries and they said, we've, we've been watching you. We've noticed you guys don't smoke. You guys don't drink. We want to be good Christians like you. And so we've set a date and on this date, we are going to all stop drinking and smoking. Well, the missionary thought it was a terrible idea because the missionary was very much influenced by a fear of legalism and that salvation should come by grace and not by works. And, and uh, the missionary didn't want the Lisu to have the idea that if they did this kind of works based righteousness, uh, you know, stopping smoking, stopping drinking, that that actually meant that they were saved And and so, and he also thought that it should be a matter of individual conscience, not a communal decision that made him very uncomfortable. So then the missionaries discussed it amongst themselves and they decided that um, they were going to ignore that advice, that it was still a very good idea. So they set the date and they all quit. And they said, they said, the thing is, they said, it doesn't make any sense for one individual to stop on their own when their conscience tells them to because you can't stop and still live with everybody drinking and smoking how would that work right good point so so they said either we all do it or none of us do it and they all decided to do it and so that happened and then it it wasn't even maybe two or three years that it made its way, because remember, this is a self-governing church. The missionaries are not in charge. It made its way into the church structure where you did not smoke or drink. You could not be considered a Christian if you smoke or you drink. Um, so um how does that play today? So that was in the 1910s. So in my own field work, which is in the 2010s, um still today, you cannot drink, you cannot smoke if you are a Christian, um, there is kind of a, a grace period of like, you hear the gospel and then it it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's get working on the smoking, drinking thing. And, but you're not going to get baptized until you give it up completely. But what it meant was this, um, you know, Gongshan, the Jung Valley, this is the wild, wild west. You know, this, these are the borderlands. Everybody is smoking and drinking. There's a haze everywhere. In this situation, to not smoke and to not drink is truly setting yourself apart. And they looked different. Lisu Christians look different on the street. I could pick them out and I'm a foreigner. You know, I could, see, I could see on the street who was a Christian and who was not. And so the smoking and the drinking, it, it really, it truly went beyond um, like a legalistic proposition as we might think in a Western sense it set them apart. And not only that, when you become a Christian, well, if you used to drink and smoke, you had a bunch of buddies who drank and smoke, right? Well, now that you've stopped, you have to change your friend group. And so now you're hanging out with the Christians all the time because they're the ones who are not smoking and not drinking. And really your whole life has changed. You're now with different people and you're attending church five times a week, which is how often at least you attend church. You're not smoking. You're not drinking. You're starting to attend Bible school. You're learning to read your own language. And so uh, converting to Christianity is not like a, an internal heart matter. It is, but it's a huge external matter. It changes your whole life.
2: That really puts a new perspective on the uh, term being born again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, it really does. It really, um, yeah, And thank you for enlighten enlightening us with this unique aspect about the Lisa Christians. Very fascinating. And um, in now in your description of um, as you go as we go deeper into the book, in your description of the Lisa Easter Festival, um, here you explain quote in the missionary era festivals brought Lisa Christians out of their isolated villages and into a larger body, building up not just Christian identity, but also ethnic identity, end quote. Um, Dr. Arrington, would you be willing to unpack for us a little more um, some of the ways in which Christian festivals now have contributed to the development of ethnic and religious identity among the Christians? And what were some of the most memorable or meaningful uh, festival moments in which you had the opportunity to participate during your fieldwork?
1: Yes, thank you. The Lisu do three uh, Christian festivals a year. There's a Thanksgiving festival and a Christmas festival and an Easter festival. And these were actually missionary uh, inventions. Uh, They can be traced back even to J.O. Frazier when he invited a a lot of Lisu Christians to his home in um, a a Chinese city, Tongchong, that he was living in at, at the time and they stayed for several days. So the first festival really originated with J.O. Frazier. And then as the Lisieux church grew and developed and wanted to send out evangelists, these festivals were um, ways to raise money to send the evangelists out. Um, so the Thanksgiving festival, you can see um, at the end of harvest, everybody's thankful. And they, they maybe have some first fruits of their harvest that they can contribute. Um, to to feed um, the the evangelists who have agreed to go out and to spread the gospel in neighboring villages. So that was the origin. Uh, The Lisu festivals, uh, Christian festivals have been resurrected and they are still in use today. I was able to attend a Christmas festival, uh, actually several different Christmas festivals. I went to different festivals in different villages. But the Easter festival, I moved in with a vill- into a village just like um, everybody else. I was living with Pastor Timothy and his family at that time. And his family wanted to go to the festival. And so I went along. And so all of us um, moved to a, a completely different village, 20 or 30 miles away. And we stayed there for four days during the Easter festival. And the festival kind of goes like this. Basically, you attend church. Uh, three times a day. You eat meals in the church courtyard. Every Lisa church has a courtyard because you have to have a place to gather together. And you, so there are communal meals uh, in the courtyard. And then at night, line dancing to Christian pop music until midnight or 1am. Okay. So that's the Easter festival. Um, And the church services, as the days go on, you're getting into day two and day three and day four, the church services get longer and longer. And the reason is the way church happens uh, is there's a sermon and that that kind of stays the same. But then there are performances, musical performances, choir performances, dance performances. And these are all put together spontaneously. So a group gets together and they say, hey, you know, let's practice singing and then we'll sing in front of church. And so as the festival is going on, all people are networking, they're meeting one another, the young people are gathering together, they're putting together a line dance, the older people are gathering together, they're putting together a choir. And so then as a church service starts, there's a time where if you have a musical act, you just write it down on a piece of paper and you give it to the service leader. And then the service leader will announce all the all the different musical acts, and and there's just more and more and more of them as the festival goes on. So um, it was about day oh maybe end of day three I think, and I had been to church a lot, <laughs> and um, you know my Lisu was decent by this point, but it's still hard to follow a sermon you know in a language that. You've only been studying for a few months. And so, you know, I went back to the room where I was staying. And, uh, but the, and I, I, was, I was listening to the sermon, though, because uh, it was going, it was being um, broadcast over loudspeakers. So I'm in my room, but I'm, I'm hearing the sermon. And I thought, OK, as soon as the pastor's done, and he was a friend of mine, as soon as the pastor's done preaching, then I'll go back to the service so I can be there for the musical numbers. So I hear him preaching, and I'm just doing my own thing. And then i hear singing but the preaching is still going on so the singing is coming from someplace else so i'm thinking this is curious what's going on so i left my room and it's pitch black at night in elisu village so i get out my flashlight and i'm just like walking around trying to find where the singing is coming from well i end up in the kitchen and the kitchen is this building and that's where all the pigs had been slaughtered to feed everybody for three days for this festival. And the, the kitchen workers were finally done because this was, we were getting ready to be finished with the festival and they were singing. And I, and I was standing outside listening, going, wow, what's going on, right? This is fieldwork. <laughs> this is fieldwork. You know, what's going on? Why are they singing? Why are, why are the cooks singing? What are they singing? And, I, and I'm wondering, and I'm thinking I should go in do I dare go in? Can I go in? Am I allowed to go in? So I'm just standing there and then two people walk up and they go in and then they looked at me and they said, come on. I said, I said, okay. So, um, and there they are arranged in a choir and they said, well, get out your hymn book. We're, we're singing number, whatever in the hymn book. And of course I had my hymn book because every single Lisu Christian has their embroidered Bible bag which they carry around with them, which has their Bible and their hymn book. And I had my own as well. So I get out my hymn book and, uh, we ran through the song and we sang it. And then the leader said, let's do it again. We ran through the song and we sang it. And then he said, let's do it again. And we ran through the song and we sang it. And then he said, I think we're ready. Let's go. And so we walk out of the kitchen and we walked up to the church, and we're now at the time where the musical numbers are happening, <laughs> and we walk into the side door onto the stage, and we sang our hymn for the whole church, for the wow. festival. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, so that was that was one of my great memories. Um, you know, one of those uh, things in fieldwork that you just don't anticipate happening. Another seminal moment in, in ethnographic fieldwork.
3: Absolutely. Just extraordinary. Thank you for being willing to share that story, Dr. Arrington. Your description of the Lisu Christian emphasis on a spirituality of togetherness is quite striking. You note that from a Christian perspective, and I quote, the strongest practices were those that could be done together, that expressed the communal life of the body of Christ, gathering together to practice line dancing, attending church, singing in four-part harmony, and participating in intercessory prayer meetings, end quote. In the West, there are a lot of misconceptions about what it means to live within a communal society. Could you explain further about the communal quality of Lisu Christian life and how it impacts their understanding of what it means to be Christian?
1: Yes, Uh, here I'm gonna go back to my own upbringing. I mentioned that I was raised in a small immigrant town where we did Christianity together. And when I graduated from high school, I went to attend a, a Christian college. I attended Wheaton College. And what I found there was that people were Christian in a different way than we were back home. In particular, they did this thing called quiet time. I never heard of it before. And, and so I was like trying to figure out like, boy, this is what my roommate is doing. This is what all the girls on my floor are doing. And, you know, and it involved like getting a cup of tea and putting on some quiet music and then getting out the Bible, and then ensuring that there was just absolute quiet. And it would be best if you were all by yourself, you know, but quiet all by yourself. And they call this quiet time. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, I have not realized what a bad Christian I have been my whole life. Like I've, I've never even known about this. And so I start doing quiet time, and found out I was just really bad at it. Um, it just never resonated with me. I, I thought that like, that would be a time where this was what I was told at least that God was going to speak to me and my spirit individually. And I would feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't. And I kind of carried this guilt around after I graduated from college thinking like, how can I actually be a good Christian when I can't even do quiet time? And it wasn't until my time with Alisu that I was able to release that uh, because it's just not quiet with the Lisu. <laughs> and you are never, ever alone. Um, there's, for example, there's no such thing really as a bedroom. Um, beds are in the living rooms of the homes. So the, this concept that there is even a place where you could go to be alone and that you would read scripture while you're uh, on your own. Well, number one, you're not going to be alone. Number one, it's not quiet. There's pigs squealing. There's kids running around. Everybody's talking. There's cooking going on over the open fire. It's loud. um, You're never alone. You're not quiet. And you don't even read the Bible that well because you only have two books in your own language. So reading is not a a practice that is cemented. It's not like you've gone through K to 12 schooling in your own language. So the whole concept of quiet time just falls apart. Um, when you bring it to Lisu culture, or really most individualistic practices. Christianity is practiced together, everybody all together. And a great example of this would be prayer, because prayer can be conducted as an individual, even silently. And we see that in scripture. And prayer can be conducted as a community, everybody all together. And we also see that in scripture. And the Lisu definitely tended toward the latter. And they would, uh, well, let me say, I found this out first uh, during some fieldwork in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where there's also a Lisu church. I was studying the Lisu language there and I was learning different goodbyes. And so my Lisu teacher, who was an elder in the church, he said, well, there's this word, this means, you know, farewell. There's this word, it, it literally means see you later. And then this. there's this word that means... Let's pray for one another. And I was like, wait, what? I thought you told me this was goodbye. And he said, well, that's that's how we say goodbye. That's how Christians say goodbye. Because even though maybe you're going to be physically separated for a little while, you're still together in prayer. And so you can depart one another in this way by saying, even though we will be apart, we will still be together in prayer. and We will be praying for one another. And I will say that's something that has impacted me to this day. And in fact, I would say this week, I said that to somebody, they, they shared something um, that resonated with something that I was going through. And I said, we will just, we will just pray for one another. You know, we will have this relationship of prayer. And I learned that from the Lisu Christians. Um, So togetherness was, was very important. I never really saw Lisu praying much on their own as individuals but they had implemented what they called intercessory prayer. And when somebody felt, and I, I participated in this, there was a family in, in our village who was going through some hard things and they requested prayer on the part of the community. So the whole church went over to their house. And first of all, they fed us. So that was great. So we got to eat. And then when we were done, we all, got, we all sat in a circle around the fire and then we sang hymns. Um, you can't really have a Christian event without singing hymns. I mean, really, anywhere in the world, right? But, but the Lisu exemplify this. You've got to sing some hymns. So we sang the hymns, um, a cappella in four-part harmony, as the Lisu do. And then the Lisu family that was having the hardship, they kind of talked about their hardship. And then they said, it's time to pray. And we all stood up. And then the family knelt down in the middle. And we all stood around them and everybody prayed out loud, um, all at once at the same time, to include me in English. And I wasn't quite sure what their hardship was, but I still prayed for them in their hardship in my own language, all of us all together, this cacophony. And then gradually it would die out. And then one voice would kind of keep the prayer going for a while and then close it. And then the family would stand up. Well this did happen. So they stood up and then they went around the circle and they shook hands with all of us individually and in Lisu Christian culture, shaking hands is a sign that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. So they went around, shook hands and then the intercessory prayer meetings were over. And uh, one of the families that I lived with, um, the the dad was was in his 70s or 80s, so he's no longer really working in the fields. So his job was, to just travel around to different intercessory prayer meetings and take part in those. And so it's it's really a great thing for the older people to do. Like they have this Christian purpose, interse- intercessory prayer.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that um, insight. Uh, some of the words that come to my mind as a, a Korean um, and who, who grew up in a Korean churches that exact word intercessory prayer we have that -hmm. that in the korean church and also quiet time Uh, that was very much emphasized growing up when i was going was it really oh that's interesting Uh, yeah so it's just very interesting to see these connections and even Mm -hmm. though they they might not have overlapped in any way but um it's so uh, fascinating to learn about these new understanding of christianity practiced in elsewhere outside of what mm-hmm. we feel as our home or comfort zones so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thank you for that great answer dr errington now segueing t- segueing to our next question um you explain in the book that lisa christianity um almost completely disappeared during the so-called quiet years which is from 1958 to around 1980 and a time when the chinese government was suppressing not only christianity but religion in general. Um, You also talk about uh, how Li Su Christians led a movement of reclaiming uh, Christianity in the 1980s, and to the extent that now a significant portion of Li Su in China, um, self-identity as Christian. um, What was it that brought about this process of reclaiming, and what did the process entail, and in what ways has this particular period in Lisu Christians' history affected the practice uh, of their faith. Yes, the quiet
1: years, 1958 to 1980, um, 22 years where all the Lisu churches had to be closed and all Christian practices were required to be stopped. And um, this was catastrophic for Lisu Christianity. before I went, I had the idea that when I, when I did my field work, that I was going to find this fourth or, or fifth generation Lisu Christian church. Uh, because after all, um, they had been evangelized in the 1910s. And so, you know, now we're in the 2010s. So that's about where we should be. Very early um, in the first week, I found that that was not the case. It was a first or second generation church one of my fieldwork questions was to ask people to tell me their Christian story. And I expected to hear, I was raised in a Christian family, like the, like the woman in the article had said that I had initially read. That was never what they said. Um, at most of the, most of the time, the people that I talked with had converted themselves and even their parents had not yet converted or perhaps if their parents had converted their grandparents had not yet converted this was a first or second generation church so this was one of the biggest questions i dealt with from the beginning you know what happened what happened to everything that i read about during the missionary time frame and also i had this idea that i had heard um, I, I think it was expressed by the church father Tertullian, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So I knew there was this difficult period of persecution from 1958 to 1980, but I had the idea that this was going to make the church grow, right? It did not. The church nearly died completely and had the period gone on another decade or so, I think Lisu Christianity would have been wiped out entirely. And I I struggled to understand this because it clearly hasn't happened in other places. In some other places, in fact, persecution has caused the church to grow. And I believe the reason is tied into the Christian practices. Lisu Christianity um, is not so much an interior faith as an exterior faith. Um, You sing, you go to church, you have intercessory prayer, um, you line dance. Uh, All of these things are exterior practices. And when you are told no exterior manifestations are allowed anymore and you will be, you know, imprisoned or put to death, if any of this happens, um, what do you have? (laughs) And so this did turn out to be like kind of the Achilles heel of Lisu Christianity, these, these Christian practices that fit so well with their own culture um, nearly did lead to their downfall. Nearly though, but not quite. Not quite. There, um, some embers did remain. And so in 1980, when the churches were allowed to reopen um, in many different villages, not all, but in many villages, there were old people now, the, the grandparents' generation, who had converted back in the 1950s and they remembered. And in many cases, they had hid their Bibles and they had hid their hymn books up in the mountains and knew where they were. And so they went, they went to the hiding places and they got their Bibles, they got their hymbals, hymn books and returned and started to teach everybody else. And so that was this initial stage um, of um, the old people telling stories. And starting to get their Bibles, but it was just a small spread, just just friends and family, and all. But something else significant happened during that time. Um, this is the 1980s, but as I said, this is you know a very marginalized, mountainous area of China. They did not have electricity yet. There was nothing like a copy machine. There's maybe one Bible every few villages. And so the young people are now hearing about Christianity for the first time. They're excited. They want to have a Bible of their own. After the field work, after after the work in the fields was completed, they would all meet in a house. They didn't have electricity. So by the light of a, a torch like fire, they would copy the Bible so that they would have their own copy and they would copy the hymn book. Now, these people, so these young people, teenagers who copied the Bible by torchlight in the early 1980s, they are now the senior leadership of the Lisu Church, and they were the senior leadership during my field work. So one of these individuals, his name was Jesse, um, and he was, you know, the kind of the sort of bishop emeritus of the church while I was there. And he said to me, he said, Young people today. It's just so easy for them i mean this is something you know older people always say and he said he said you know if they want a bible they can just go to the store and buy one he said they don't know the bible like we do we copied it for ourselves right so that was the first stage in the 1990s the evangelistic spirit came back and they started sending out evangelistic bands to different uh, villages. And also Christians from Burma, which now is Myanmar, start returning. These were refugees. Um, because uh, in the 22 years of persecutions, all the, ch- all the church leaders had left and had crossed the border. So um, the, the Christians who were left, you know, were leaderless. And, and then again, you have the issues with Christian practices being so exterior um, that was a lot of the reasons why it dead, why it, it nearly died. So now the leadership starts coming back from Burma and Christianity has progressed among the Lisu in Burma and they now have a full Bible translation and they've now done theological training and they've done Bible schools. They come and start doing short-term Bible schools um, back in, back among the Lisu villages on the other side of the border in China. And it just fits perfectly because all the grooves, you know, were there, you know, that was where it had originated. It was like bringing Christianity back to the place where it had originated and it just fit right in. So they started evangelizing. And then what I call the third wave was, is around the year 2000. They started building infrastructure, Um, church buildings built once again. Um, So all the church buildings that I saw, when I was doing my field work came after the year 2000. Wow, powerful.
3: Thank you, Dr. Arrington for that poignant um, explanation, um, the resilience of the Lisu church and the role that different generations have played um, in this process of reclaiming Christianity. Um, The final two chapters of your book really hit home, this idea of the permeation of the sacred into all aspects of Lisu Christian life including through expressions of indigenous culture and hymn composition, church architecture, and the like. Could you elaborate for us um, on some of the ways in which the interaction of the gospel with Lisu culture has offered glimpses of the infusion of the sacred? Which aspects of their own culture and language have Lisu Christians most associated with their religious identity and why?
1: Well, what I found was the Lisu have not been influenced by the enlightenment. The enlightenment has been so influential in Western culture, and it has enabled us to divide life into very neat categories like the sacred and the secular, um, you know, the body and the soul. And that's not Lisu thinking. Everything is one big piece. Everything is one big whole. And so, as I mentioned before, if you are a Christian, this impacts your whole life. It's not that it impacts your internal self and it, doesn't, and it doesn't impact your external self. Of course it impacts your external self too. You're not drinking and you're not smoking and now you have an embroidered Bible bag and you know, um, so many things have changed. Um, and so this idea that there might be aspects of life that belong to the sacred sphere and aspects of life that belong to the secular sphere, that just doesn't really fit with the Lisu conception, which is just much more holistic. So everything in life becomes sacred um, in this way. And I saw this very specifically with a New Year's festival. The New Year's festival, um, I just happened to be living with a Lisu family um, during New Year's. And this was actually um, Solar New Year, not Lunar New Year, Solar New Year. So January 1st. And there had been um, a Lisu festival that predated Christianity Um during this particular time where, and it involved a lot of New Year's activities like sweeping the house clean and slaughtering a pig, things like that. Um, but in this process of reclaiming Christianity and really infusing it with their own culture, even this, um, I don't know, so-called, so-called secular, which I don't, what we might call a secular fest, uh, secular uh, festival, I would say a pre-Christian festival would be a better word for it since they don't really have the concept of secular. This pre-Christian secular in the about in the previous 10 years or so had itself become sacred. And what happened was on New Year's Eve, I was kind of um, looking around going, you know, I'm in this village up in the mountains wondering, is anything going to happen? Well, I, I don't know. It appears nothing's going to happen. So I went to bed and my, my bed is not in a bedroom. You know, my bed is in a living room. There's a there's an open fire there, and um, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door, and it's midnight. And the there was a quiet. The knock on the door was by a choir, and the choir came into the house and sang a song. The house is two rooms, sang sang a New Year's song that they had been uh, working on in church. And then they all stood around the family and they prayed for the new year. And then they put a poster up on the door with some Bible verses and the year, you know, the new year and a cross. And, and, and then that poster stays on the door for the whole year. And it kind of marks the house as a Christian family, that this here is where a Christian family lives. And then, and then I, I kind of drift back off to sleep. And then I could hear a knock on the, on the, on the house next to us. And I could hear the singing again—the exact same song. Interestingly, it was actually to the tune of "Happy Birthday." <laughs> so it was—it was easy for me to recognize. And then every every single every single house in the village, because the whole village was Christian, um, this was the way to ring in the new year. Isn't that amazing? And so um, your whole life changes when you become a Christian. Because you are a whole person. You are not just a soul and a body or, you know, an inside and an outside. And you know, there's not an idea that faith impacts who you are inside, but not who you are outside. You actually look different from the outside when you become a Christian. And so in terms of identity, um, the reason why Christianity works so well with Lisu culture is that um, being Christian just makes you a better Lisu. You know, for example, being Lisu means that you speak the Lisu language, right? Well, when you become a Christian, um, you now have more words and you have more songs and you have a written language. And even the oral language of Christians is more developed than the oral language of non-Christian Lisu. So you can now speak your language better. You can go to school in your own language, go to a Bible school, right? So you're a better Lisu. Pre-Christian Lisu culture involves singing. So being Lisu means that you sing. Well, once you're a Christian, you now go to church five times a week and you're singing hymns all the time and you're doing line dancing. And so now you, know, you sing even more than you did before. Being Lisu means you're being together. You know, Lisu culture, even pre-Christian Lisu culture was about being together. Well, now being together has its own structure you know, with the church and the services and the festivals. And so there are even more ways to be together. And so Christianity has just amplified um, Lisu-ness. Oh, one other thing is that if you're Lisu, you wear your traditional Lisu clothing. But Lisu clothing is fancy. You know, it's beaded headdresses and it's jewelry and it's, and it's skirts that are pleated. So you're not always going to wear those in the fields. Um, but you're certainly going to wear them on a stage when you're singing on the choir during a festival, and so the the basically the church pro- provides a stage for the exhibition of Lisu culture, and so that's why there's there's just a real seamlessness between ethnicity, religion, culture. It's just all one piece.
2: Wow, it's really being Lis uh, being a Christian really empowers what it means to be a Lisu in a way. It
1: does. I, yeah. It does. One time, um, Jesse, I've mentioned Jesse before, um, he said to me, he said, You know, you know them, in English, we would say the Manchu people. In Chinese, we'd say the Man people. He says, You know the Man people up in the north of China, they were the last dynasty of China. He said, Their culture has pretty much disappeared. And it has. The, the, The language has died out, culture has died out. He said, They ruled China. Their culture has pretty much disappeared. He said, how about the Hmong dynasty, uh, the Mongol people? He said the same thing. He said they had this giant empire, but within China, they're pretty much the same as the majority Han Chinese. He said, but we Lisu, we are still Lisu. We have our language. We have our Bible. We have our culture. When other minorities become Christian, they have to learn our language. And just this feeling that Christianity has empowered the Lisu as a mi- as a marginalized minority people.
2: Yeah. Wow. Wow, Dr. Errington. Thank you uh, for that deep and in- enriching insights to Lisu Christianity. And, and also, thank you so much for the time you mm-hmm. took with us um, to discuss your very fascinating and um, great book as we really took a deep dive into the world of the Lisu Christians. Um, as a way to conclude our interview today, though, there is a final question that we would like to ask you. Um, Dr. Arrington, do you mind sharing with us what you're working on now? Um, maybe a little about uh, your current and future projects and what you hope to uh, work on.
1: as well. Sure. Uh, I will mention one thing I'm working on because it has a very strong Princeton Theological Seminary connection. Am oh, I? And uh, I am co-editing a book with Afey Adogame. And so the book is called um, Interconnectivity, Subversion, and Healing in World Christianity.
3: Extraordinary.
1: And so uh, we are in the stage of editing the different chapters. And so uh, um, through that, I've gotten a chance to work very closely with Afe. And that has just been a delight um, to to have that opportunity to collaborate with somebody who is so outstanding in the field. Um, So yeah, that's the next thing that I'm working on.
2: Uh, um that sounds like a wonderful project. And also, we look forward to uh, reading more of your work, uh, Dr. Arrington. And once yeah. again, thank you so much for being on the po- on the podcast today.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
2: And thank you, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode uh, in which we explored I Aminta mean, Arrington's new book, uh, Song of the Lisu Hills, Practicing Christianity in Southwest China, published by Penn State University Press in 2020. This is your host, Young Ho Choi.
3: And Brianna Wong.
2: Stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has
0: anyone seen the bride and groom?